Hi, and welcome to the podcast ministry of New Life Church in Springfield, Ohio. We hope that the transformative truths of God's Word impact, challenge, and bless you. Um, have a body that's taking time to invest in one another and encourage one another, and sometimes a little thing means a lot. It does. And the longer I've been in ministry, the more I've realized that. And I've got to where I'll see somebody doing something real small and just say, hey, you're doing a good job. Sometimes we need to hear that. And uh, I appreciate the kindness of this church. You can be going to Luke 15. Um, We're going to be reading there tonight. And uh, appreciate your spirit. I appreciate Brother Johnny. I love you. I'm proud of you. And I was talking to Brother Joe the other day about all the different people that have worked with young people when I was a kid. And I, and I told Joe there's only one out of all of those that made any difference in my life. And it was Johnny Casey. Because he loved me. I was a shy little fat kid. Now I'm a loudmouthed little fat kid. <laughs> I was uh, often felt out of place and uh, alone in a crowd. Just my personality. And uh, he always showed me love and kindness. And uh, helped me when I started learning how to play music. And I was awful. So bad. And he loved me. And I love you. When people show you kindness when you're a child, you never, ever, ever forget it. So just let me encourage you tonight. Maybe I should have told you privately and not embarrassed you to death. But you've made a difference on a lot of young people's lives, and we appreciate you. Um, I, I've been feeling the Lord stir my heart and, uh, about... Uh, about certain things, and, and I feel a tremendous burden to preach to us tonight. And I feel like what we're getting into, and, and we've talked about, um, we've talked about it amongst the preachers of the church. I feel like this is a turning point for the body, and that God wants to give us some meaningful counsel. And prepare us for a season of harvest. And I hope to be a part of that as the Lord leads. And um, there is no way that I'm going to get through preaching when I'm preaching the next couple weeks without many tears. Um, Because it's meaningful to me. And um, we're going to be looking at how that we ought to handle and deal with and work with sinners and especially backsliders. I've been very burdened of late, and I know I'm taking a few minutes for a number of backsliders, that, are, but I've been very burdened of late over, over a number of backsliders that I know that are church hurt, um, that tried to live right, and that didn't get it right. And... and 
maybe that were failed by leaders who didn't get it right or places that missed the mark somehow. And I know folks, even in my own family, that at one point were really in to church. And something happened, and the devil used hurt, and they became bitter and wounded. And uh, I begin to think about, about that, and I've been praying that God would fill, um, that God would fill our pews with those people who have been church hurt and wounded. Because this is a church uniquely equipped to minister to them. And what I mean by that is this is the most loving body that I've ever met. And I've been in almost every state in the country and Mexico. Um, this is the most naturally loving body I've ever been a part of. And I believe that God has given us people that are like-minded and that are willing to do the hard work of ministry and recovery and restoration. And I'm praying that God will fill our pews with those that the other churches wouldn't take, with those that they wouldn't work with, with those that they wouldn't love on, with those that they wounded. And, and I, I could list names of people I've been praying for by name. And I want you to know this is this is a body that can minister to people like that. You may not recognize it, but I do. And, and so we're going to get into the preaching, and, and we've prepared a couple weeks, but I'm not going to rush this. I'm, I'm not going to take a long, long time, but I'm not going to rush this because I feel like there's some things the Lord wants us to hear. And, and this might be more like teaching than preaching, but it, it's timely. Uh, Luke chapter 15 uh, verse 11, and then he said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The KJV there says riotous living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I've been preaching over the next couple weeks on when the party's over. Um, let's pray. Father, I feel the burden of the word of the Lord tonight. I feel your spirit in this place. Oh God, bind every hindering spirit in the name of Jesus. Give us liberty. Lord, I believe your people have been praying and preparing their hearts for what we're getting ready to do. I've felt their prayers. 
And I believe you're in it. Have your way, Lord. Guide me. Direct me. Move for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 15 is um, a very familiar passage to anybody that's been in church for very long. Uh, Brother Johnny gave us a little, little sermonette from an earlier portion of the chapter about those lost sheep. It begins in a manner that disturbs me. The Bible says that all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. The worst of the works. Can you think of anybody that would be more despised in a culture than a tax collector? What, it's, what it literally was, was it was Jews that were taking money from other Jews to give to Rome. And often pocketing some on their, on their own. Or reaping a fortune off others' backs. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Can you imagine how many people might have a bad attitude if an IRS agent tried to get saved? We might struggle with graciousness on that one. The, the Jews hated the tax collectors. The sinners, the worst of the worst, came to Jesus. And the religious people complained, saying, This man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. That bothers me. It really does. It bothers me that the religious crowd was upset about sinners trying to get to Jesus. And it ought to bother you too. In one place, Jesus told them, you've taken away the key of knowledge. You don't enter in, and you hinder those who would. I say, God forbid that it should ever be my fault that somebody doesn't come to the Lord. God forbid that it should be our fault that somebody doesn't come. Unfortunately, that there has always been a religious crowd that kept people from coming to Jesus. And, and, and Jesus responds to them with telling three different stories about how God feels about lost things. And, and corrects them and tells us these stories that have moved our hearts for generations. And he talks about a lost coin and how desperately that woman searched for it. And a lost sheep, as Brother Johnny mentioned, and how the shepherd was willing to leave the ninety and nine. By the way, he left them, I'm sure, with an under-shepherd or a hired hand, hoping that that higher hand would take care of them and go and find the one that's missing. And how many of us have had needed God to come and find us? We got in some place we didn't need to be. And here we're looking at the story of a lost son. Now, if I lost a large amount of money, I'd go looking for it. A while back, we, I somehow lost a debit card. Fortunately, my wife works at the credit union. <laughs> but somehow they turned off the wrong card. I'm going to blame it on her, but she didn't actually do it. And it was three or four days before we realized we had turned off the wrong cart. And a couple hundred dollars of charges were just popping up in random Amazon purchases. The first one I saw, I was like, okay. And so I called Charles. I was like, did you buy something expensive? Because we have a rule in our house. 
We never spent any, anything over $100 without a discussion about it first. And that's, that's a rule, isn't it? It's a no-joke rule. I'm not kidding. And, and a lot of times we feel bad about even spending 40 or $50 and have a discussion about it first. It's because we went through the Dave Ramsey class. Amen? <laughs> and, uh, um, so anyway, I called her. I was like, you know, we're buying a lot of stuff for preparing for a baby. And I said, did you buy something? She's like, I bought lunch. <laughs> I was like, well, there's such and such charge. You start missing money, it'll get your attention. A while back, I went home, and I couldn't find my dogs. And they had gotten out of the fence while I was gone. And I found them. They were out wandering around in the woods behind my house. But you lose an animal, you'll start looking. But if I lost a person, it would devastate me. If I lost a family member and I couldn't find them and there was a missing persons alert, it would have shook me up. If one of your children went missing, you'd be out putting posters. I, I heard, I heard, I work for a company that handles risk solutions products. And I heard the story uh, this lady was telling. She had been kidnapped. And she was telling how her mother went putting up posters everywhere she went. And, and people got involved and posted her all over. And the person who had taken her had planned to take her life. And that day, the FBI broke down the wall and, and uh, broke down the door and found her and rescued her. And now she goes all over the country trying to help people understand internet dangers and things like that. A lost child drove a mother out the house and onto the streets. And that's the way we ought to feel when somebody backslides. It ought to mess us up when somebody leaves the house of God because they're discouraged or because they're hurting or because they're broken and the devil got a hold of them and, and talked them out of the house of God. It ought to mess you up when somebody that you love leaves God. Now there, there is a doctrine that says no matter what you do, once you've prayed a prayer, you can never, never uh, be anything other than a Christian. And, and they say you can't lose your salvation. I don't have time to get into that, and, and that's not the point. But ain't nobody ever lost their salvation. by act. It's not an accident, but you can leave it. You can walk away from God. God said, no man plucks you out of my hand, but you can take yourself out of his hand. And you can walk away from him, and many have. And it ought to mess us up when somebody leaves the house of God. It, it, we ought to be upset about lost loved ones. It ought to bother you when you see the shape that their life is in. How many, how many say, I've been praying for a, a sinner in my family here lately, and I'm bothered by the condition of their life. I'm bothered by how lost they are. And, and so the first thing I want, I want to do here is I want to talk about kind of why the prodigal left home and what happened when he did. And I, I don't want to go too slow, but, but I want to take my time too. So there's this question that why in the world would he leave a place where he had everything he needed? If you look in the book of Ruth, chapter number one, it tells us about a man named Elimelech, and he lived in Bethlehem. 
The word Bethlehem means the house of bread. And the Bible tells us that there was a famine in the land. And so he packed up his bags and went to Moab. And that's always, I've always struggled in my mind to understand the logic of that. In the middle of a famine where food is scarce, why would you move out of the house of bread? But the devil can get people to think in that way. The house of God is the house of bread. It's the place of provision and supply. But, but there's, there's an enemy of your soul that would woo you away from the house of God. And so that's what happened here. The first thing I want you to, to see about this prodigal son is that he had a distorted view of his father. If you read the interaction in verses 11 and 12 between the prodigal son and the father, he says, give me, give me, well, Jeremy's been trying to tell me that the kids are in charge, not you. I don't know. We'll see. And give me the portion that falls to me. See, he was stuck on what his dad could do for him and had forgotten who his father was to him. And there is a lot of modern religion that is me-centered. The songs are me-centered. The worship services are me-centered. The preaching is me-centered. And, and some people have even gotten, become so audacious as to say that they can command God to do things for them. It's nonsense. The Bible says he's the Lord. He's done whatsoever he hath pleased. In other words, he says, I'm God. I do what I want. You can tell God what to do. That's nonsense. And, and, and there's this me-centered religion. It's the culture seeping into the church. But, but the Christianity, Christianity and the Christian life has always been Christ-centered. It's always been less about me and more about him. And when my life becomes less about me and more about him, it becomes easier and easier to serve the Lord. The, the less of me there is and the more of Jesus there is, the better I have it serving God. But the more of me there is and the less of God there is, the harder it becomes to do those things that I know are right. And the easier it becomes to get my eyes on worldly things and misplace my focus. And, and if you begin to live in a way where you think that church is about you, you will very quickly become disillusioned. If you think that your relationship with God is all about what He will do for you and what He will give to you and what you can motivate Him to do, you're going to find yourself, the first time He doesn't do what you want, bitter and upset and disillusioned. And I asked God for this and He didn't do it. And people have left the house of God over that because they misunderstood who God was. He is not... He is a gift giver, and he, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. But he's not just a gift giver. He is the sovereign God of the universe. And my relationship with him must always be based on the fact that he is God and I am not. And if I get that out of whack, then anything other than God can begin to get my attention. We sing that song that says, Jesus at the center of it all. If Jesus is anywhere other than the sinner, you're on your way out the door. Because things will begin to get your attention when it was supposed to be Jesus at the center. You'll be thinking about career and about money and about the next step in your life and about the next thing that you want. And where it used to be Jesus at the center, now it's ambitions at the center. 
Now it's desires at the center. Now it's relationships at the center. And for some people, now it's their children at the center instead of Jesus at the center. And so when Jesus is not the center of your life, anything else can and will fill that void. So his view of the Father was distorted. I serve God not because of what he can do for me. I praise him because of what he has done for me. And I love him because of how good he's been to me. But I serve him because he is God. He is king. He is judge. And I don't want to go to hell. The ultimate reason I got saved is because I don't want to go to hell. Amen. Now the perks of living for God are out of this world. Eternal life. The presence of the Lord. A prayer answering father. Oh, we can go on and on about that, and we have, and we will again. But it's, that's not why I serve him. That's the perks of serving him. And so when, when you get your eye off of who the father is, and only focus on what the father does, then pretty soon you'll be impressed by what someone else does. And now this, this boy gets his, his mind on something else. And his heart is headed somewhere else. He said, Father, Father, give me the portion of good. And it says, so the father divided his livelihood. It didn't say he divided his savings account. It said he divided his livelihood. Another place said he divided his property. I'll tell you right now, if my kid comes to me and says, give me what's mine, I ain't selling my house. Soon after he got what he wanted, he left. He departed his father's house. I have a question when I read this text, and I know we've tried to make the father in this story a picture of God, and I'm not sure that's the point. I'm not sure that misses the point either. But my question has always been, why did this father just not say no? No. Give me the portion. No. No. I know it's in the heart of parents to provide for their children. I've done many things to try to ensure that we are on a path to take good care of our little girl. And she ain't even here yet. And uh, I'm already in trouble. But there are some things that I will not give her. And I will not allow her to do because they are not good for her. And, 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 you know, I know parents want to give. Not only that, but parents want to rescue their children from their mistakes. Not only that, parents want to rescue their children from their sins. And, And I might need to come back to that, but there is a difference between providing and enabling. There is. There comes a time when you're dealing with someone in an addiction or in a cycle of terribleness where your answer has to be no. There's a warning to a parent here. There comes a time, and I have felt, I I wept and cried over this the other night in prayer. There comes a time when you need to put the checkbook away and you need to say no. 
And I know I'm skipping ahead, but I want to tell you right now, if the father had sent money to the far country, his boy would have never come home. And there comes a time when you say, I love you, I want the best for you, but I cannot rescue you from this cycle of sin that you're in. I can point you to the answer, I, but I'm not paying off your dealer. I'm not bailing you out of jail. I'm not giving you the money that's supposed to go to rent so you can go drink it all the way. I'm not going to enable your sin that's destroying your life. And you know what? Those are the kinds of stands that you've got to take with many tears and with a broken heart. I'm not telling you something that is easy. I'm telling you something that is heart-wrenchingly difficult. But there comes a time when you've got to tell your prodigal no. And I wonder if the story of this young man might have been much different if his father would have simply said no. I remember a a pastor, and I got a little bit of ahead of myself, but I felt like I needed to go down that route. Um, I remember a pastor who, his child did something, and he was getting ready to correct her. And he said he felt a little whisper in his ear, say, I'll just let it go. It's just a kid. He walked away and began to let it go. And he said, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to him and said, that is a seducing spirit. And if you allow it now, it will destroy her later. You parents need the discerning of spirits. You need to see what God wants to do in your baby's life. But you also need to be deep enough in prayer to see what the devil wants to do in your baby's life. You are the guardians of their heart, especially when they're in your home. And, and that's, man, there's so many different directions to go there, but there, there, there is a sobering warning to parents here. Sometimes you must say no, and you must stand on it. No matter what they say or do to you in response, it must be no. This prodigal leaves his father's house and spends every single thing his father gave him. There are some kids that have spent their parents in a bankruptcy because their parents couldn't say no. I need to move on. The the word, it it says that he spent all his living and prodigal living here in the New King James. In the KJV, it says riotous living. Unchecked, unrestrained, no rules. That's what that means. That word, riotous, gives an idea of being in the middle of a riot. Whatever you want to do. And that's the way the prodigal wanted to live. So look what he did. He went to a far country. The Greek word translated far country here is only used six times in the New Testament. All of those times it describes a long journey and a long stay. That's why we have that old country saying that sin will take you farther than you wanted to go. And it will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. He went to a far country. Far from home. I have some counsel for you here about backsliders. <clears throat> and uh, I just looked at my clock, but I forgot what time I started. So, um, When people leave, don't tell me. I just want to preach. When people leave God, they seem to go to the extreme. Anybody know any backsliders right now that are acting crazy? And you know they know better? And they know they know better? When people leave the house of God, they go to the extreme. He didn't just go down the street or go to the next town over. He went to a far country. 
And the reason for that is, is if you get far enough away from the Father's house, you can no longer hear the Father's voice. And there are backsliders that are running into all kinds of things because they're running from conviction. They're running from the Spirit of God that would draw them back to Him. They're running from that voice that tells them that what they're doing ain't right. They're running into trouble because they're running away from God. And that's why they run. See, how do, did, did you just make that up? No, that's biblical. God told Jonah, go to Nineveh. Nineveh ain't anywhere near water. It's in the middle of the desert. Jonah didn't want to do what God said. He went down to the water and was going to take a boat ride to another place with water. God told him to go to the desert. Nineveh's in the middle of Iraq, if I remember exactly where it was, right? It's in the, nowhere near the water. So he ran as far away as he could to get away from God's voice. The good news is, though, that running backslider that's breaking your heart cannot escape the voice of God. They're breaking your heart with the things that they're doing. And you've wept over them and you've cried over them and you've lost sleep over them and you've lost meals over them and you're devastated even here tonight over the things that they're doing. But David, Brother Joe talked about the psalm. David said, Whither shall I go from your spirit? And whither shall I flee from your presence? If I go, if I go out into the morning, if I get up and make my bed in hell and there, if I go out into the middle of the ocean, you're there. If I make my bed in hell and there, it's specifically talking about if I die, you're there too. But then it says something that, that gets me. He says, the darkness hideth not from thee. If I say the darkness shall cover me, surely the night shall be light about me. The darkness and the night, the darkness and the light are the same to thee. Two things about that. First of all, the darkness itself cannot hide from God. God can always find the sin. But secondly, the darkness cannot hide you from God. And the devil would convince you that I've taken your loved ones so far that God will never be able to reach them. But I want to tell you, God can see in the darkness of their life. He knows exactly where they are. He's got, he's got better than GPS. And GPS thinks Route 4 is in the middle of a lake. But God knows exactly where they are. God knows how to find the prodigal. Not only did God, God knows how to find things. He told us through prophecy that Jesus would be the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. He told us he'd be born in Bethlehem. Then he told us the name of the house. He said that it would be born, and thou, O tower of the flock, unto thee hath dominion come. He told us exactly where Jesus would be born and exactly the address of the manger in the book of Micah. God knows the specifics of where people are in their sins. So take heart, God knows where your baby is. He knows where they are right now while I preach to you. And he is able to begin to deal with them when they're all alone because God knows how to find. I remember a person who had been backslidden for a long time told a story about how they had gone so far from God, they were late one night sitting on a bar stool trying to drink their troubles away. 
And they said, the Holy Ghost spoke to them and said, why are you here? And they broke down in tears and came back to God. My grandpa, Birchfield, told me shortly before he died, I asked him to tell me his testimony. And he said he had, uh, he, he had been a mean, angry man. When my grandma got saved, they cast devils out of her. I'm not making that up. She was full of the devil. And now she's one of the most godly women I've ever met in my life. And uh, my grandpa, they had been pinning prayer cloths to the band of his pants. He was a trucker. And every time he went out of town, a group of women gathered in her living room and prayed for him. He told me one night he was in Delaware, and he, he tried to drink all night long. Drink until he was embarrassed about how much he spent. And couldn't get, he said, I couldn't get high. Couldn't get drunk. He said, well, forget this. I'll go to bed. Couldn't go to sleep. Now, I'll never forget what he told me there at the Mexican restaurant. He said, I couldn't get high, and I couldn't go to sleep, so I got saved. And he, in the latter stages of his life, he, he was in kidney failure, and he'd be unconscious, and he'd come to speaking in tongues, full of God. When I, when I went to say goodbye to him when he died, when I walked into the nursing home room that he was in, there was almost a tangible presence of God. Because precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saint. And I felt the Holy Ghost when I walked into the room. He said, I couldn't get drunk, and I couldn't go to sleep. So I got saved. And oh, God knows how to give them a moment where they can make a choice. Amen. People try to run from God. I remember a preacher telling a story of how he had backslidden and... And he said, I, got, I was afraid of the dark and I was afraid to be alone because I would sleep with the light on and music playing and I'd try to be around people all hours of the night because every time I got by myself, God would begin to deal with my heart. And the Spirit of the Lord found him in the darkness and began to tap on his shoulder and say, hey, you ain't living right. People go very far. I want to tell you, if you're a prodigal, is acting crazy, that's a good sign that God's on the case. Do you hear me? You need to hear that. When they're acting crazy, it's a good sign God's dealing with them. And if they're lashing out, that's a good sign God's dealing with them. And so this, this prodigal, um, he went real far. He had a lot of fun. He had a blast. And I want to tell us something here that we need to understand. And, and I hope I'm not taking too long, but I'm not looking at the clock because you need to hear this. Um, there is a period of time where sin is fun. Uh, I read a, of a preacher that said that when somebody leaves the house of God, they feel a sense of euphoria, of excitement. All of a sudden, there are no rules. There are no restrictions. And, and, and we need to understand that there is a period of time when they're having a blast. The reason we need to understand that is because it's almost impossible to reach somebody that's in the fun stage of sin. It's very hard. It's very hard. The problem is while they're in the fun stage, they are making decisions that will ruin their life. They are making relationships that are toxic. They're developing addictions in the fun stage. 
And the Bible tells us about Moses. When Moses chose to go with Israel instead of be counted as the son of Pharaoh, he chose to, to, to choose the afflictions of the people of God rather to, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And, and from that lesson, we've learned that there is a pleasurable season to sin where it is a lot of fun when they're having a blast. <clears throat> I remember a young person, the last time I, I spoke to them uh, on a personal level, they told me, I know if I die today, I will go to hell, but I'm having too much fun to stop. And they are still not saved. And that was well over a decade ago. Broken home, family problems, and the season of fun made life-altering decisions. It is hard to reach them in the fun stage. It is. But that is when your voice must be the loudest. Because that's when they're making those decisions that will destroy them. And that's when they'll fight you the hardest. And that's when they'll hurt you the most. Because they don't see the problem. Because they're having fun. But the problem is the Bible says he, he spent all on prodigal living. The problem with the fun is that he ran out of funds. He ran out of the problem with sin, of the ability to have fun. That's the problem with sin. It entices you, and then you run out of the ability to enjoy it. You, you drink, and then you build up a tolerance to it, and you've got to drink more, and you get more and more sick because you drink more and more, and then you're an alcoholic. They, they do the head, and they feel the high, and then the next time they have to take more. And then the next time they've got to take more. And then eventually they run out of the ability to have fun. I know of a young man that became such a bad alcoholic that he could no longer drink water. He would vomit immediately. He ran out of fun. That's the problem with having fun in sin. Is it gets to a point where it's no longer fun. But it's a bondage you can't get away from. That's the problem with sowing your wild oats is you reap wild oats, and you can't eat wild oats. You'll starve to death in a field of wild oats. There's, there's a place where sin is no longer fun, but it's something you're desperate to get away from, and you feel like you are bound in shackles that you have no ability to break. And I want to tell you, if that's you and you're in this place today, the good news is that Jesus can break the shackles of sin. Jesus can break the shackles of addiction. Jesus can break the bondages of habits. Jesus can break anxiety. And Jesus can, can break suicidal tendencies. And Jesus can break those nerve problems. And Jesus can change it. He can turn it. If you'll turn your life to him, he'll turn your life around. I know this because I was a prodigal son. And now I am a preacher because there was a time when Jesus broke it. Sin is a trap. And when he ran out of funds, there was a famine. See, sin, you feel good for a minute and then you feel empty and dirty and broken and hurting. The reason, the reason that, that sinners lash out 
It's because they are hurting. They have wounded themselves by their sins. And we as the body who would reach them, we must understand that when they lash out at us, it is because of the pain that their sin has caused them. And Sister Polly says it right. Broken people have the sharp edges. And we must not respond in kind or we'll never win them. You'll never win your prodigal by arguing with them. You'll never win by responding to their foolishness. I've never, ever, ever won one person to the Lord by arguing with them. Never. In all my life. Never won anybody by being mean to them. Never won anybody by screaming and yelling and throwing things. I've wanted to a couple times. I never won anybody like that. And nobody won me like that either. Nobody won you like that either. Amen. He was in a famine. What this literally means is there was very little to eat. He began to be very hungry. Sin leaves you with an empty place in your soul. An empty place in your heart. We have a generation that is so empty. They have been taught they didn't come from anywhere. That they could have been killed in the womb at any time. That they're not going anywhere. Their life just ends when it ends. There are no consequences to any of their sins. And in fact, they're not responsible because it's their environment's fault anyway. And so what we have is a generation that has an identity crisis. And that is desperate for some meaning to their life. That's why suicide rates are climbing, because people feel no meaning to life. But let me, let me dispel that lie for a minute, because the fact of the matter is that every man was created by God. Every man and woman bears the image of God. And because they bear the image of God, they are infinitely valuable to God. You matter. You matter to God, and you matter to us. You bear the image of God. You have an eternal destination, and it will be either heaven or hell. Eternal means forever. It will be either heaven or hell on the basis of do you repent of your sins and understand that Jesus is Lord. You did come from somewhere. You came from the plan and the will and the power of God. You are going somewhere. You are going to the judgment. All men must give an account to the Lord. There are consequences to your actions. They're the consequences are the reason that you feel the way that you feel. The reason that we have a generation of broken, hateful, angry, bitter people is because they have been taught they have no value. <clears throat> and if people don't think I have any value, why should I care what they think about anything else? do you have enough value that God sent his son his only son to give his life for your sins so that he took the penalty of sin so that you don't have to that's the gospel that's the reason we have a church Jesus died for my sins so that I don't have to die in my sins or because of my sins Amen. That's the gospel. That's what Christianity is about. The sacrifice of Jesus. Amen.
the fun of sin wears off. He ends up in a farm, and I'm hurrying to a close. Just give me just a few more minutes, okay? And uh, I won't continue to close more than three or four hours. And uh, it's only 7.30. You're going to stay up late anyway. Except for Chelsea. She'll be asleep as soon as she hits the pillow. This young man began to starve. Sin leaves you hungry, longing for something, needing something. And nobody gave him any food. He's starving. You see, he begins to lose weight. He begins to feel very weak. And all those symptoms of starvation. You ever seen a picture of someone that was starving with a bloated stomach and, and, and the gaunt eyes? And they look like they're dead men walking. That's where this boy was. He's so desperate, he takes a job at the pig farm. Now, aside from the fact that pigs stink, we don't really think it's a big deal to go get a job at the pig farm. Because under the Jewish diet, it meant something. Because under the Jewish dietary law, pigs were unclean. And even touching them made you ceremonially unclean to where you couldn't go into the house of God. And, and he, as a Jewish boy, who knew that the pigs were the lowest of the low, for that's rock bottom for him. You see, sometimes God has to take the prodigal to rock bottom to get their attention. And that's where I come back to the, to the point of not rescuing your sinners from the consequences of their sins. Because you, in rescuing them from hitting rock bottom, you can keep them from having that I came to myself moment. And I know that's hard to do, but I have seen parents with good intentions and loving hearts keep their prodigals in the far country because they kept enabling them to stay there. But this boy was so desperate that he went out and started feeding the pigs with stuff that's nearly inedible for humans. And the Bible says he would have gladly eaten it. He's starving to death and what's in his hands really is inedible for him. And it says no man gave to him. Do you understand something? Sin does not care if you starve to death. It only cares... If you feed the pigs. Now. <clears throat> here he is starving. Longing. Alone. Nobody loves him enough to even give him a piece of bread. Nobody cares. To them. He's a piece of trash. A castaway. Good for nothing. Garbage. There are a lot of people that that's what they feel about themselves because of their sins. You see, this boy's in the pig farm, and he knows that if he goes home, he can't go right into the house of God. He knows his culture will not allow it. And in fact, later, when his father receives him, his father would have made himself ceremoniously unclean. By embracing him. I want to tell New Life Church something here. There are prodigals. Who would love very much to come home. Who would love very much to come home. But the churches that they're associated with. Have taught them. That you cannot come home smelling like pigs. You can't come home. That broken. You can't bring. That life here. 
You can't behave that way and come here. And they're out there in the pig farm wanting to come home and not knowing if there's a home to come to. And I want to ask you, New Life, are you prepared to love somebody that smells like pigs? Somebody that reeks of brokenness, covered in sins. Are you prepared to love someone with different children from different mamas, different babies, different daddies? Are you prepared to love somebody that's on their second or third or fourth marriage? Are you prepared to love a homosexual couple? Are you prepared to love a drunk? Are you prepared to love an addict? Are you prepared to love somebody that's mean and hateful? Are you prepared to love a homeless person that really does smell like the pigs? Are you prepared to love the one that the other church wouldn't? Hmm? I want to tell you today, if you're here and you're not saved, I asked this question of our church, but I know the answer is yes. This is a place where you can bring a broken heart. This is a place where you can bring a broken life. This is a place where you can bring those things that you're ashamed to talk about. This is a place where you can bring all of your sins. And in fact, there are people that have wanted to come home. And the church culture has taught them that they have to fix their problems first. Because then they can be accepted. And so they're out there in the pig farm trying to get their home life together so that they can come to Jesus. They're, they're out there trying to get out of their addiction so that they can come to Jesus. They're trying to find their way out of alcohol so they can come to Jesus. And that's never been how this works. The only way it works is if you come to Jesus just as you are. It's Jesus that breaks addictions. It's Jesus that cleanses sinners. It's Jesus that does the saving. It's not the rudiments of religion. It's not the way we do church. No, it's Jesus. It's the Jesus that died for you, that loves you, and that will take your hurt, and that will take your pain. It's Jesus. Always Jesus. Only Jesus. He'll make the difference. Now when people bring those kinds of brokenness to Jesus and they give their heart to him, he's changed their heart. But they've still got to figure out how to unravel their life from all of these things. And that's where we come in. Will you help the addict stay clean? Will you help the drunk find a job? Will you help the homosexual couple figure out the logistics of unbreaking that relationship that they can't stay in and be saved? Will you help those who have kids with different, different moms and dads and it's not their spouse and mixed families and broken homes? Them here. We must set an atmosphere that feels like home. And I want to tell you there is a church to call home. It's this one. There is an altar to pray at. It's this one. There is a body that loves you. It's this one. 
There are people who will open their homes and their hearts to you because they love Jesus and because Jesus loved them. Some of us had very broken lives. Some of us had broken homes. Some of us had addictions. Some of us were hurting and had depression and anxiety. Some of us had suicidal thoughts. Some of us had all of those things and all of that guilt and all of that shame until Jesus. I want to ask you, what can you do to make it feel like home? Because there in the darkest moment of his life, he had a moment where he realized how bad he was. And the first thought in his mind was, I could go home at my father's house. Even the workers have enough to eat. There are people that will come here and will not be prepared to pray the first, the second, or the 15th time they come. But if we set the right atmosphere, when they hit rock bottom, they'll say, I'm going to go to church. And I know I can find Jesus there. What can we do? The reason I am so broken is because I was an up and down and in and out teenager, hurting, getting into trouble, wanted to be saved, but didn't seem to be able to stay that way. Somebody interrupted a service and preached a message to me. And God interrupted my life. And that year of wandering, I had more pain than all the rest of my life together. But when I brought it to Jesus, He began to heal it. And it didn't all feel better the first time I prayed. But I knew there was a difference. I'm going to tell you, you, you're not ready to pray today. And if you did, you would just be putting on a show because you're not ready. But when God begins to deal with your heart, there is a place to come home to. When you're ready and you mean it, there's a place here and a body that loves you. And I'm not going to give a specific altar call today. Uh, I just don't think I should. I'm going to tell you what all of, all of the church is going to come and pray here in a second. If you're here and you're not saved and you want to be, you are the one that's ready. If, you, if you'll get our attention and you'll come forward with the rest of us, we'd love to pray with you. I promise you, you won't pray alone. You won't. This is my challenge to new life. I want us to fall into these altars today. And I want this to be our prayer. Lord, tell me what I can do to make this feel like home for somebody else's prodigal. Tell me what I can do to make this feel like home for your family. Because maybe you're the one that can make it feel like home for my family. What can I do, Lord, to make it feel like home for their prodigal?